Welcome to today's episode of InfoSec Journeys. Uh, this is a real special one for us. We have uh, Mike Jones with us. Mike, thank you for taking the time out to speak to Ashley and I. We're super excited to get to know you. Mike, you've been described as a cyber terrorist previously by the International Business Times, a, a moniker which, if I'm honest with you, I don't think I've ever heard anyone, any individual being called before. You're a US military intelligence expert, an Iraq war veteran, original member of Anonymous. This could go in a number of different directions, our conversations today. We've got a lot to explore with you about your background, your relationship with the cybersecurity industry and the threat landscape as well. Before we dive in, before we crack you open, let me throw it over to you, Mike. Please tell us who you are and, and what you're all about. Sure. My name is Mike Jones, um, originally from the States, Washington, D.C., to be exact. Um, and I started out with Anonymous, and now I'm leading teams and, and trying to break new ground all throughout the world and help uh, help kids make better cyber decisions. That's interesting. That, that, something I picked up on there, so what do you mean by help kids make better cyber decisions? Because we've had a few people, you know, in earlier early days of this podcast, who've, you know, they could have made that fork between good and bad. So, what do you mean by that? So, it's a constant evolution for me. Um, that fork is always there. Uh, I help the London Police do their uh, cyber intervention workshop, um, where they take kids who have been identified as potential cyber criminals, haven't really crossed that that black and white line yet, but are dancing on it really close. Um, they bring them together, they bring in people from the industry to show them what they can do with their skills, what direction they can go. And they bring someone like me in who has been on the other side of that line and trying to explain to them what it's like after, after life, you know, what happens after you cross that line. And then I talk to them, uh, they can relate to me and I talk to the parents and then I talk to all of them together. Uh, to try to give them hope and some kind of idea as to where they might want to go later on in life. What's, what's that kind of conversation like? Because I imagine, you know, you, I see like a series like Mr. Robot, which I absolutely loved it, right? I think everyone wants to be a bit of Elliot Alderson who works in this infosec industry, really, the kind of inner hacker of you and um, uh, just that kind of fanciful story. Like, it, it, it kind of makes it sexy to be on the on the wrong side sometimes so how do you get over that because it's, is being a bad guy quite sexy for you know or quite appealing for certain people i i think the media does us a disservice uh when it comes to portraying what life is like on that side um it's not always glamorous it's not always hollywood um, there's a lot of paranoia that goes along with it because you don't know who to trust. Uh, and I've seen a lot of people go down some really dark paths. Um, but I mean, as far as like the kids seeing that and they, they, once they get a dose of what reality really is and they see the headlines and they see and hear from somebody who's been there, um, I think that that glamorous Hollywood appeal kind of dissolves a little bit, especially when they take a tour of a jail. I'm sure that that's not very appealing. Um, but yeah, that one thing that I have to keep in my mind every day is that fork and that decision is always there. Um, and it doesn't take much, uh, you know, as we know in cybersecurity, um, the laws aren't very definitive when it comes to pen testing cybersecurity. I just had two friends, 
last year get arrested on a pen test, on a, on a sanctioned pen test, um, and went to jail for it. So th there's always that that fine line. How, how can that even happen? Like you're on a pen test. Surely, who, who's prosecuting? Who's the guy that's that's pulling the trigger there to say these guys need to need to go to so, jail? So it's pretty public. Um, they worked for Coal Fire. Oh, oh okay. I know the story. Know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> we've all listened to the Darknet Diaries episode. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. Okay, cool. Yeah. Still, though, it's mental. You got to think. You know, I, I remember listening to that podcast, thinking that makes no sense. Like, like, why would you prosecute these people? They clearly were there. Not for new, there was not nefarious, they were there to do a pen test. But mm. I guess you are right, the law laws are getting better. I don't, I don't know, I've um, background I used to live in America as well, mm. but I don't know, you know, what how it is now in terms of legalities about doing penetration testing and doing cybersecurity work and 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 how how people are viewed in this industry, especially uh, people that toe that line. Um, so, um, when you started out. Like how how did you start in cybersecurity? Were you a technologist, or did you did you start in some sort of different arena? I started in a completely different arena. Um, when I was a kid, very young, like seven eight years old, I got in, in, uh, interested in electronics, um, building things. Uh, parents would give me electronics kits, and I would design things that those kits weren't necessarily for. Um, got into some RF. Um, and then I went to the military. Um, before I went to the military, I had done a lot of hacking, um, just as a hobby, as a passion. I wanted to break things, wanted to figure out how it worked. Um, and I believe that that goes back to the mindset. It takes a certain mindset to be successful in penetration testing. Um, I've seen a lot of guys who are really book smart, but don't cut it as far as the hands-on. Um, and I think mostly that's because of the creativity and the mindset that you have to have to be able to, to envision and think like the other side. Um, so when I got started in cybersecurity, I actually left the military, became a contractor and worked for one of the largest commands on the East Coast doing their C&D and IA ops, the information assurance ops. Uh, I left that and went to commercial and I went to telecom, surprisingly enough, I went to uh, Verizon and worked for Jim McDonald over there. Um, and it was fantastic entry into the into cybersecurity, but I found that my skill set was more suited towards the red side. Uh, but I, when I talk to people, especially kids, I try to explain to them that in order to be 100% effective at what you do in cybersecurity, whether it be red team, blue team, purple team, whatever, it's very important to know both the offensive side and the defensive side in depth, because you can't really defend against something you don't know. Um, so I, I spread myself pretty thin and dove right in on both sides. Uh, and eventually, you know, anonymous became a thing and, uh, that's where my road took a turn. Um, but I still had legitimate jobs. I still worked for large corporations. Um, I was a faithful employee to a point during the day and at night, something different, um, Occupy wall street. I was actually working for one of the large banks that we were attacking simply because of the fact that I had access to information that most people didn't. And there were some corrupt activities going on within the bank. Uh, so anonymous, people get the wrong idea about anonymous because the ideology we had uh, back then was to kind of like equal the playing field and bring justice to injustice. 
and provide some sort of transparency and expose people and, and corruption. Um, the things that you see anonymous do that are very questionable and, and very uh, dishonest um, with any group, you're going to have small groups within those groups that act on their own. Um, something that, that we couldn't control and we wouldn't want to control. Uh, but they would go off on their own and do something under the auspice of anonymous, which was you know, completely wrong. Uh, and the law enforcement liked to tag people that they collected as hackers as anonymous. They would find some way to link them to anonymous. Because at that time, Anonymous was hot on the radar and they wanted to stop the exposure, you know, stop the, the attacks uh, because it was really making law enforcement look bad. Um, but yeah, so I, I think it's really important to, to know what the dark side looks like, but also focus on defense. Um, unfortunately, my, my road went way right into the dark side and now it's back on track. Uh, it took 13 years of investigation to get me back on track uh, and a sit down with law enforcement and the government and uh, come to a realization that, you know, I, I had done so many things that, you know, I had a stack of papers sitting against me that were charges. So, you know, I was given the opportunity to make a different decision and I ran with it. But saying that, it still affects me. Um, I still have a hard time getting a bank account can't get one. Um, driver's license, can't get one. Passport, got revoked. Um, just a lot of things that normal people take for granted that are luxuries and not really a right. And I've lost that luxury. Um, so I try to explain that to the kids when I talk to them, that, you know, it, it looks great from the outside. There's a lot of money involved, but when it comes down to it, you're risking your entire life and your freedom. So that's, that's the direction I went. Yeah, and it's, it, we've we've gone through a, a, an emotional journey just <laughs> just in that very small space, and you've accelerated a lot of time. And I just I, I don't know where to start, but I mean it's it's just it, it it is your life, and I think it's crazy to see what how you started the middle and where you're going now. And we'll definitely talk about where you're going now because it's super exciting, and you know you know seeing you back you know over this side of the world. So we'll we'll definitely cover that, but. So the so I, let, let's go back to the beginning of it again. So the army, what? Why did you go in, into the army? Why did you go into the military? What was that all about? I went into the navy because um, I was at a point in my life where I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. Um, I knew that intelligence was where I wanted to be. Uh, so my dad worked at the NSA when I was a little kid, and so I was kind of born into the community. I guess I was born at Walter Reed and spent a lot of time uh, around military. My godfather was a Russian linguist during the Cold War. Um, so I, I had access and, and exposure to that environment. And uh, when I went to military, I, I told him I'm not going unless I get exactly what I want. And that was uh, cryptology, I was a CT. Um, and it was really interesting, it was really fascinating learning how to intercept signals, uh, decode stuff on the fly. Um, there's a really great uh, TV series, I think it's on Netflix called Pine Gap, uh, which yeah. kind of goes into that. Um, so that that lifestyle really, it gave me what I wanted and gave me what I needed. And then at the end of my enlistment, they came up with a cyber warfare rating in the Navy called CTN. And uh, I was approached about that, went before a board, passed the board, 
and help develop the first course. Because when I became a CTN, a cyber warrior, there was no course for it. There wasn't even a rating badge yet. Um, so that, that kind of boosted my skills in network, network attack and defend because I was given uh, knowledge and access to tools that most people probably wouldn't have. Uh, so it really helped uh, further my thinking. And we used to go to uh, conferences at NSA, uh, red team conferences, um, you know, just the, the amount of information that was there. I remember going to a conference and learning how to write shell code at the conference. Uh, I mean, it was just, it was mad how much, how much information was out there. How do you, um, when you're in that environment then, when you're in the Navy, um, you know, working in a, in a cryptology environment, um, intercepting signals and stuff like that, I obviously super technical, I imagine high pressure. What, how, how do you actually, how do your superiors within the military measure your success? How do you become like an expert in that area as opposed to just, you know, some guy who's really good at their job kind of thing within the military and then, you know, go off to do other things. How, how, how do you prove that you can excel in that area? What do they look for specifically? It's really the same thing as in the commercial world, right? So the, the, the drive to take courses, to take certifications, um, the military pays for that. Um, and they look at, at, you know, your outside duties and, and, what other things you're interested in, what kind of things you pick up. Um, and that all goes into advancement uh, consideration. So the more conferences you go to, um, the more extra duties you take on, of course, the military is going to you know, be happy with that. It is a very high pressure environment. Um, I worked at the Joint Force Intelligence Command. We had imagery analysts. We had weapons analysts. I mean, it was, it was pretty intense. Um, but I really enjoyed it, and I had a, a really good military career. Um, had medals, uh, honorable, men, you know, honorable discharge. You know, I did really well. Um, it was the intelligence I was exposed to while in the military that I didn't quite agree with. Mm. Um, some some of the stuff that I saw during the Iraq War was, uh, let's just say, not what was portrayed on Fox News. Um, so that kind of put a bad taste in my mouth, and I decided to get out after that. I mean, we all know we, we spoke to, you know, we spoke to Jack Resider about, uh, you know, about this. We, we all know that psychological psychological operations were definitely affected during that time, and there's you know propaganda all over the place on both sides. So we all, you know, I guess we all know, but you all know from a a level which is probably I can't I probably couldn't even comprehend within the time period we have to speak. So, um. So you, so you left the military and went straight into the commercial world. What was that like? Was it just well, like a, a lightning bolt or a shock of thunder to a different world? I took a year and went uh, back to work in the same compound for the U.S. Joint Forces Command as a contractor. Um, and I sat on the, uh, the basically a, a SOC. We call it the GCCC, but it, it's a SOC. Uh, I sat there and watched um, IDSs for the first couple months until it just made my mind numb and told them I need more of a challenge that this was not going to work. And uh, they put me, promoted me into the CND cell, which was over the analyst and also did forensics, password cracking, um, really getting me involved with what I wanted to do. Um, and I'm not saying that being an, uh, an IDS monitor is not a bad job. You know, I, I think it's good for different types of people. But with my mindset um, and Asperger's, it's really not 
a good place for me. Like sitting there watching a screen and doing nothing but watching a screen all day will drive you mad. So then after that, I went into commercial. I left Virginia, went to Dallas, um, and went to work for Verizon, helping them build their SOC and monitoring uh, Verizon's internal corporate networks across the world. Just um, just rewind on what you said there. So did you say um, Asperger's? Is that, is that yeah. a, a condition you have, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, talk to us about how that's kind of played into your your career then um did that did does your mindset and your capabilities come from that condition do you think um i'm pretty sure it did i had a talk with uh, jeremiah grossman uh, some years back um, and a lot of other guys that i know in the industry and it seems most of us have some sort of uh presence on the spectrum and the kids that i deal with usually at least 80 percent are on the spectrum um, and I think that, that we see things a very different way. M normal people, what we call normies, see things kind of gray, black, white, kind of blend, you know, but, but having Asperger's, it's black or white, it's on or off. And that's the same way that technology works. It either works or it doesn't work. Uh, there's no gray area. Um, so I think that we're well suited for that. And, you know, the rabbit holes I dive off into um, have given me a lot of a lot of knowledge. And I think we tend to do that quite a bit because for the longest time, um, social situations made me feel really awkward. Uh, speaking, starting to do a public speaking really helped. Um, but yeah, I think the mindset, it, it affects the mindset and it, and it helps you look at things in a more technical perspective, I think. What, what's interesting there, I think, um, you know, being in, in the military, which is obviously, I, I, I'm not, obviously had any direct experience but know plenty of people and family members who are military veterans very close-knit community i imagine right you know brotherhood almost with you know the, the the people that are in and around you on a day in day out basis but yet asperger's is it more you feel more comfortable when you're isolated and and kind of on your own but yet you're surrounded by people in this real close-knit environment it, it it almost doesn't doesn't fit the the, right. the, so, the right mindset, right? Yeah, so, so if you look at CTs and our level of clearance, we're put into skiffs, basically like a vault door. Um, and most of those people in that room are just like me. Uh, very technical, very, you know, heads down into their work. Um, not a lot of socializing. So that type of environment, that, that lockdown environment, I dealt with really well. Um, in the CND cell, there were only three of us in the cell and nobody else was allowed in. So it, to me, it was a comfort zone. Uh, but you're right. It, like when I went to boot camp, I found it extremely stressful. Um, you know, it was high pressure. There was a lot of people. There was no privacy. There was no way to get away. Um, but in the workplace, when I got stationed, it, much different situation. Mm. But I can see how someone would thrive in that set, that scenario with Asperger's because you're given a task, you're locked in a in a vault, like you said, and you just do the work. And I can imagine, um, I was going to say hiring managers, but it's not a hiring manager. But I, I could I could imagine, you know, uh, top brass or top officials. Will still, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for the people that can you know spot patterns and just work and do what they're told and just do it and no chat back um yeah. so I, I can i can see that um that, sorry it's very, 
that and it's very black and white. Mm. So it, it's very predictable in the military what's going to happen on a day to day basis, and routine is very important. So, mm. so, so then um, when you're working for a financial institution in the US, have a, a little bit of experience with that also. Um, quite an, uh, a diverse landscape to work in. How did the conversation come about then? You know, you're you're protecting an FI from cyber attacks. Um, were you red teaming in that environment then? Yep. Okay. So kind yeah. of red red team, purple team, and stuff like that. No doubt, uh, helping to protect by by ethically hacking. H- how do you get noticed then? How does the conversation with anonymous come about? Like, what so, was the trigger point? So the the relationship actually started shortly after the military. And there was back then it was a handful of people. It wasn't uh, it wasn't a huge group. Um, one of the guys that I knew actually lived in Dallas, and uh, Barrett Brown is his name. And, and we crossed paths several times. Um, and at the at the bank, I was actually working threat management at Red Team. Um, so threat management, I was looking at you know some of the more higher profile um, attackers and seeing how they would attack the bank. Uh, But they actually wanted me to gather underground intelligence. So at one point they were even willing to put me underground with a burner phone and just let me go. Um, So I had a lot of freedom there, a lot of freedom to do what I wanted to do and and test the things that that I thought were important. Um, And it was all internal bank infrastructure. It wasn't, uh, we didn't do anything for outside clients. So that conversation spun up because of um, relationships outside of the bank, uh, common views, um, the the underground IRC, stuff like that. Um, We kind of got together and and developed this this ideology. Uh, And by no means did we expect it to grow as large as it did, but it it caught on and and blew up around the world. Mm. I think it really struck a nerve, didn't it, at the right time as well. And 9-11 happens and, um, you know, major kind of um, microscope goes on to to that whole kind of corruption and stuff that you alluded to earlier with the Occupy Wall Street and stuff. I forget, Occupy Wall Street was post 9-11, right? I think. Right. Yeah. Okay. And at what, what stage then did, at some stage, the US has put you into an exile so where, where did that come about how where's that on the career journey man, man that was that was brutal so i w- i was going back and forth to to uh scotland aberdeen scotland for work um we had a sock in aberdeen and i was going up there to train people and i was going back and forth and decided that you know i wanted to stay a little bit longer and uh was going to wait out my my passport and so me and my girlfriend at the time decided to take a trip to Las Vegas to go to Black Hat. And we get to the airport. I had a health condition that came up and had to be taken to the hospital. My passport, I like to hide underneath the, the, the boards and the mattress so that only I know where they're at. Um, so when I went to the hospital, went by ambulance, they locked the room, promised that nobody be in there. When we got out of the hospital, went back to the room, went to get my stuff, my passport was gone. I thought, you know, that's strange because we have money sitting on the table, we have laptops, but then I took my passport. Um, so I went to the U.S. Embassy and said, you know, look, I, my passport's been stolen. I don't know what to do. I'm trying to get back to the States. 
And they said, okay, well, you need to file a loss or stolen so we can cancel that passport. I said, not a problem. So I filled out the paperwork. And then I said, okay, here's my money. I need to go ahead and get an emergency passport. And so we filled out the paperwork and they came back after they took my money and said, um, I'm sorry, your, your passport's been revoked. And I was like, wait a minute, you know, I've been going back and forth for, you know, two years now. How is it revoked now? Um, and I, to back up a little bit, I had previously been on watch list and no fly list and all the, all the craziness. Uh, but this time they completely revoked my passport. And I asked them, I said, well, how am I supposed to get home? And they were like, don't know. And they didn't really care. They just left me in, in the UK. Um, called the State Department, couldn't get any answers on the State Department. Uh, so I was basically in London illegal for almost two years. Um, and that's when I started speaking and, and doing things with the police and trying to, you know, keep myself moving so I didn't think about what was going on with, with me at the time. Uh, fortunately, how I got back was same health incident occurred again. Uh, and this time um, the hospital worked with me and worked with the UK government and said, look, he has a condition that, that he has to be back in the States and he needs treatment. And um, the US was really reluctant, but finally allowed me to get on a plane. What was funny is when I went to the airport with the consulate paperwork, and the 60 pounds that they gave me to travel with. I show up at the, the ticket window and, and the lady comes over and she's getting my bags and, and we're going through all that routine. And she stops and she says, uh, I'm gonna have to get somebody, I'll be right back. So she goes and gets somebody else who then goes and gets two more people. And they're looking at the screen and whispering. I'm like, what is the problem? I have consult paperwork in one hand, ticket in the other. What's the problem? Well, it seemed that not only was I had my passport revoked, but I was also on a DHS list. And so I couldn't even get past security without DHS clearance from the States. So they sent an agent and I am getting on the plane and flying back with an agent from DHS. But it was, it was insanity. So how, how does, how do you get to this point? Like, so, so if we pedal back, you, you, you know, you were doing, you were doing your daytime job you were hacktivist at night slash early evening whatever you want to call it um so how did you get caught then this how did this all start because it started at some point they didn't just one say one day say the u.s government said you know what we're gonna pick a we're gonna pick a number out of a hat and say oh it's mike jones today we're gonna we're gonna fuck with him today like so how did it how did this all happen it started when i was in dallas uh i started dc 972 which is a defcon group um, FBI showed up there. I had already had contact with other members of Anonymous, so I was already on their radar. Uh, then they started the investigation while I was at Bank of America. Um, they caught wind of what was going on with Occupy Wall Street and some of the stuff I was doing. And the FBI has a really good way of giving you enough uh, room to like completely destroy yourself. They'll let you run and commit crimes for years until they have a good case on you. Uh, so they did that and you know I, I did what i did and and we kind of it came to a head in 2016 but also i got to point out too is that it also has things to do with people i worked with not just worked for um i went to work for a company called eyesight partners at one point very early on and uh the, the ceo john waters actually um started eye defense which was sold to another company so eyesight partners i was one of the first six employees and i was a um vulnerability 
I guess, analysis and, and digging up information on the dark web and monitoring like threats. Um, my boss was ex-CIA Mike Susong. Uh, and I, I had to go and get a polygraph just to work at this commercial company, this startup. So it was, it was really strange how things worked out, but they have a really close tie with the government. And they knew what I was getting into as well. And to be frankly honest with you, some of the things that I was getting into, I was being paid to do by them. Um, so there's, when, when I talk to kids getting into the industry, I always tell them, you gotta be careful who you work with and work for, because not all companies are on the up and up. And it's not, sometimes it's not completely obvious, but that's where the investigation started was Bank of America, Occupy Wall Street, and then it just cascaded down. Um, some of the contacts I made, some of the things, operations I did, um, the FBI took note of. And uh, they like, like I said, they like to build a case and let you yeah. build, build your own case. Do you think they ever orchestrated a situation? To, well, I, mean, not, I wouldn't say because entrapment's illegal, but do you think, think they ever orchestrated that situation, almost dangled a carrot for you to take it for, so, they, so they, they could definitely nail you for it? Absolutely. I'm, I'm quite positive of that. And then also... In, in groups like Anonymous and, and with different hacking groups, the government likes to put plants inside the groups. Uh, they had flipped at the time Sabu and turned him into an informant. And he was, he took down a lot of people. A lot of people got arrested. Um, you know, I, when I had the meeting with the Secret Service and U.S. Attorney's Office, I was given the option of becoming a CI. But my lawyer and I had talked about it beforehand and decided that I'd be a CI, but just not against groups in the U.S. It would have to be other than anonymous and foreign foreign intelligence groups. So I got put into APT twenty eight. So APT twenty eight is fancy bear, right? Russian. Sophie, yeah. Okay, so how, how the fuck do you get put into an APT group in a Russian APT group? What the fuck? So. I have some ties to that group already. Um, you mentioned and, Russian, your godfather, Russian linguistics. I'm presuming we're going to link to this somehow. Yeah, so I, I know a little, little bit of Russian. Um, the Russian hackers and Polish hackers I've been close to for a very long time. Uh, some of the best hackers I've ran into are from Poland and Russia. Uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, a lot of the scientists and computer scientists went without jobs. And so they were very effective at creating their own little groups and they had knowledge that, that I wanted. Uh, so self-taught, learned some Russian, um, got involved. And uh, that's eventually the, that was the last stop I made with the FBI was as a CI in the uh, APT 28. I mean, an APT group like that, that is so prominent, so prevalent with their capability, do, do you not, I don't know. I almost feel it's uh, I, like, did, did, they, did you did you not think they'd sniff you out as a CI? Are they not like super cautious, super paranoid that they would Every, they would know? Do they think everybody's super paranoid in in the hacking circles? But the thing is, is that to be a good hacker, you have to have social engineering skills. You have to be able to react and adapt in certain situations and kind of go with the flow. Um, when it comes to APT groups, there's there's always a level of uh, trust that's not there from the get-go. And the way they vet people is by carrying out certain operations for them, then they can trust you. 
And the more you do, the more trust you get. Um, the FBI made sure I had every asset uh, available to me, even a, a, a linguist for stuff that, that I wasn't quite sure of. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's basically how a group vets you is by involving you in some of the more deeper operations. Yeah, okay. And then, so when you're working in that, in that group then, like, do you, do you suspect other people within that group are also CIs because you're a CI as well? Can no, um, no, the, the way they do it, the way the FBI does it um, and Secret Service and CIA is they, they check cross-agency to make sure there's no other operations going on so that you're not mixing channels. Um, and so I was the only one that was tasked to that group in that group at the time. I'm sure there were people monitoring me 24 seven, but I was the only one who was actually a CI in that group at the time. Could there have been, you know, other five eyes agents oh, yeah. in there? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Or would you have known? No, I would never would have known. Um, like I said, it, you know, the, the people that I conducted business with was like a group of three people within the group mm. and it was one account, they would share the accounts. Um, can't really go into too much of it, but they were more targeting. Uh, I was put in the group to look at APT 28, Russia. It was the year of the election, 2016. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. I was told to look for things. Um, and I ended up finding information that was a little bit more valuable than election information. Um, and when I found it, uh, things got a little cold on the FBI side and they kind of pulled back a little bit. So it was, it was an interesting period of time, especially in the U.S., but it was even more interesting that the relationships between the federal government, the APTs overseas, and what, what was actually going on within the political environment. Mm. Yeah, I, it's, it, it's interesting. <laughs> I mean, what, what else can I say? Like, I mean, I listened, you know, I listened to your, your podcast on Saturday, and you, you covered some of this. Um, and you, you sent out those files and I had to look through them and um, in a sandbox because, you know, I didn't, I didn't trust you. Um... <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, I'm sure they're fine. I'm sure there's no stego in there that popping calculator up now and again. But um, uh, yeah, so you're doing that. Dare I say it's, it's scratching that itch. You're deep undercover. You're doing operations, you're crafting malware, creating exploits, finding, you know, harvesting um, exploits as well. Uh, how do you exit or can were you, were you able to exit? Uh, when it came to the FBI, they exited before I did um, mm. because I was getting closer and closer to the truth that they didn't want exposed. Um, so they went cold like really quick when I started getting close. Uh, APT 28. Um, as soon as the FBI left and I was no longer having the weekly meetings and signing, you know, monthly OIAs, um, I kind of dipped out of the process. Um, What's an OIA? OIA is otherwise illegal activity. So basically that, that form is when you sign it, you're saying, okay, I'm going to be committing crimes for the FBI, but it's okay because it's sanctioned and, but if you go outside that scope, and it's very well defined, if you go outside the scope of what they want you to do illegally, then you're going to be responsible not only for what you did outside the scope, but also the scope itself. 
So it, it was really confusing to me when I first signed it and my lawyers explained it to me. I said, so basically they're going to have me do things that they would arrest me for, but it's going to be okay because I'm a confidential informant. So to me, it really making sense that I'm still a criminal, but, but it's okay because I'm an FBI criminal. Just, yeah. Double-edged sword, I guess. And um, what did your NSA father think about all of this? Um, so my father and I don't have like a really close relationship. Mm. Uh, and during the whole um, FBI investigation, I had uh, files on a thumb drive um, and stuff that I wanted hidden. And I gave him a copy of it, didn't explain what was on it. We just told him to lock it up in a safe um, in case something ever happened. But they weren't very happy with the investigation portion of it. Um, they couldn't understand why I was doing the things I was doing and, and you know what, what the projected outcome was gonna be. Um, so we, we never really saw eye to eye. Um, both my parents are really good people. Uh, they just didn't know how to handle me, I guess. Um, me and my brother are on two completely different wavelengths. Um, and when you sit us down in a room, you would never know that we're brothers. But um, yeah, so, you know, they, they, weren't, they weren't too happy about it. Uh, and they were glad to see when all of that ended. And I was no longer doing the secret meetings and, and stressed out. So... But, but does it ever me. does it ever end though? No. Can you ever, you know, I, I sit here listening to you now and listening to the little, you know, from Saturday, and you get really emotional about it because it is your life. So this this never ends; it never goes away. So yeah. I mean, it, it how, how how does that you know, like you, you mentioned earlier earlier on, you can't get a bank account, you can't get a driving license, you're not, you, you can't act like a normal human being. You know, almost that your your human rights are being stripped away. But why? Why? What, what happened? What happened? Nobody knows. And we've been trying to get to the bottom of, of why they they fear me, I guess. I don't know. Um, because there's a couple of the people I know in the same situation. Mm. And all we can think of is we have a, we've had access to certain things that if we're exposed could change a lot of stuff for a lot of people. Um, and it all goes back to culture too, right? So the government fears what the government can't control and the type of people that, that we are and the abilities that we have, if we're not working for them, who are we working for? And they want They want to keep us close so they, they can keep that. It goes back to that mentality of keep your enemies closer. Um, and that's the only thing I can think of. We've tried to dig into it. I've had journalists that, that looked into it and it's a dead end, um, but it never stops, you know, and, uh, it, little things pop up here and there. And it's, I've learned how to adapt. I've learned how to get by. I've learned how to kind of survive, um, if you will. Uh, there's Bitcoin. There's places where you can start a company that the government can't expose, uh, like Dubai. Um, there's, there's all kinds of ways that you can get around the system. Um, but I would much rather not have to do that. You know, if I could get, go back and do it all over again, um, it would be a completely different world. But you know, unfortunately, I have to deal with with what I deal with. Well, why do you talk so publicly about all of this, Mike? Why Why do you um, talk about the fact that you are a CI in APT twenty eight, for example? Do you not Do you not fear like retribution from that others in that threat actor group and stuff? What 
no, driver no. for talking about it. Well, to be honest with you, I have nothing to lose. I mean, what am I going to lose? The only thing I have left is my life. Um, you know, they, they've stripped me down to the... Pretty big to things to lose, though. Yeah. You know, but the 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 intelligence and, and the hackers, going kinetic is a big deal. And they're not going to waste kinetic energy on somebody that won't make a huge difference if they're gone. Um, and unfortunately, that's the case. You know, if, if I was a government asset still... Yeah, I'd be a little worried. Um, I had protection when I was um, a CI uh, through the FBI and through other agencies. Um, so I, I wasn't really fearful what I was doing because I knew that I had eyes on me. Uh, but now, I mean, they're taking control of me or doing something kinetically to me is not going to advance them in any way. Um, and really, I haven't exposed APT28 other than what they were really looking for. Um, which every APT does. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, it's nothing abnormal, but what the U S does is a little bit different. Um, I, I think people need to know what can happen and what the government does and how bad it can be. Uh, because if I don't, if I don't release the information and I don't talk about it, then there's going to be another person just like me who gets stuck in that same cycle. Mm. Do, do you, do you practice reasonable OPSEC then? Oh yeah, do you... absolutely. Yeah, because I mean, if I was you, I'd be worried that, you know, uh, my, my everything I do is being siphoned off and decrypted. I mean, I'm I'm jumping through multiple different proxies. I'm, but I, I mean, we're, we're, you know, working in the jobs that Colin and I and the people we speak to, the people that you speak to, you, you know that it, it doesn't matter how much upset you go through. It doesn't matter really. You could do, you could practice as much as you as much as you want. You, you almost can't be hidden. But right. like, what do you do then? How do how do you how do you ensure that APT twenty eight aren't watching you right now? Well, I'm I'm sure that somebody is always watching, and and just normal people, somebody always is watching. Um, and I tell people to conduct business on the internet as if somebody was sitting right behind them watching, uh, because it, it's true. People do watch, but. I had a journalist once tell me that what has happened to me and what could potentially happen um, doesn't happen to people who are very vocal because those people, when they go quiet, people start to worry. Um, so I go out and I talk about it. Uh, becoming a public speaker has helped me get the message out. And, you know, if, if something happened to me, it would be pretty public. Uh, so at that point, you know, then the bar gets raised. And on the podcast this weekend, I said, you know, one of the reasons why I was throwing that those files out is because mm. if the FBI came after me for that, then they're admitting to everything that's in those files. So, you know, there's a little bit of fear there, but, the, you know, like I said, I don't have a whole lot to lose anymore. Um, so I just try to get the message out and try to inform people as to what really goes on behind the veil. How, how do you feel about the country you reside in today then? I'm trying to get out. <laughs> I can't vote. Um, like I say, I can't have a bank account. I live in a very remote place. I think our driveway is like a quarter mile long on top of a mountain. Jeez. Um, so, you know, I'm comfortable where I'm at, but the goal is to get to another country where I can have my life back um, and start to live like a human being again instead of a, somebody on the run. Would that be Russia? Uh I don't know. Um, 
uh, somewhere close, probably. Uh, we're going to look at places like London, like Germany. Um, you know, I, when I was in London, I was really close to law enforcement, and I did a lot of stuff for law enforcement, and they respected uh, the way I handled myself. Um, so that's a, a that's a very good option. Uh, but I look for countries that know the pain that, that goes on in the U.S. as far as corruption and all that stuff, because they're normally very supportive. I don't think Russia could be a solution, but, you know, walking into the den of the lion, I don't think is probably too smart right now. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, probably not. Um, so, all right then, so now then so you know new direction how did this all happen um talk, talk me through this then so i've worked for a few companies over in europe um and i've been doing independent consulting here in the states uh working for companies that are outside the united states and uh just this past uh week i was given the opportunity to work for a german company um new direction cyber and i'm really excited about that they, they didn't quite know my background, and when I was on the, the interview with him, um, he asked me to tell, tell him about my history and, and my background. And I'm very transparent when it comes to that. I tell people exactly what they're going to find if they Google me because it's, it's there. I can't hide it. Uh, so he Googled me on the, on the phone call, and his jaw dropped, and he's like, this is you. And I said, yeah, that's me. And um, talks went on from there. You know, He knows my military background. And uh, they got some really cool stuff going on um, in Germany. Uh, but I've also worked as uh, members of, uh, of the board for a couple European companies, one in Scotland, um, actually two in Scotland, and uh, as kind of an advisor uh, to help guide the, the companies. And of course, like talking uh, conferences and um, which is, I got two coming up in January. Um, and then working with the police to help kids. That's the most important to me because it's a way that I can give back, uh, not necessarily to uh, a country or a people, but kind of to give back to society and give back to myself, myself 10, 15 years ago. You know, kind of like, uh, I guess mending it a little bit, but you know, the whole process is really therapeutic for me. Um, even the public talks, I, I get a lot out of it. And it helps me uh, stay motivated and you know stay on the right side. So, do you feel like help helping helping kids not stray the line? Is it almost a self therapy to say, "I went that direction. Please don't go that direction. You know, it's not worth it. You might be getting offered thousands, thousands, hundreds of thousands. Just don't do it. Look at me now. It's almost like you almost self redemption. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely definitely therapeutic. Um, and to see those kids that we're kind of lost, you know, I, I can totally relate. Um, but another thing too, is that as an industry, as countries, as law enforcement, we don't give kids the cyber law before they get on the internet. So these kids are running wild and not knowing really what's right and what's wrong because the CMA, even for an adult, the CMA is kind of convoluted. So you expect a 12 year old to go out and seek the CMA, read it and understand it and act accordingly. It doesn't happen. Um, a lot of these kids start off like modding uh, games or, or doing stuff within online games. Mm. And then that progresses because the people behind that are usually organized crime trying to groom the kids and bring them in. Um, so talking to these kids, it, it helps me remember where I came from 
it reminds me not to go back. And it helps me like have hope that these kids might see something or hear something that'll stop them from having to go through a lot of chaos. I think what I've seen a bit of a shift, certainly in the last couple of years, is is almost like an explosion in the bug bounty community, which is obviously ethical hacking for good, where people can earn a shitload of money from, you know, hacking legally. And it's been, I know, like Tommy DeVos, Doggy G, who's obviously a million dollar hacker one hacker, um, who who is, uh, if I'm right, I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying that he served some some time in prison as well, um, and was certainly investigated from, by the FBI in his younger hacking days, and turned good. Like like saw this, he was like, shit, I've you know been trying to hack things and sell things on the underground, whatever, but I could I could do it for real life and get paid. And he's a million dollar hacker, unbelievable. Um, so. I, that's it for me personally i see that as a very promising part of the landscape where it's almost like companies are outsourcing their their red team you know or their or their pen testers um which is which is good lucrative for everyone i guess yeah that and it it keeps people busy and it helps uh further technology um without hackers without people with our mindset technology wouldn't have advanced the way it has i mean if you look back 30 years, 30 years ago, the technology we have today in the, in the palm of our hand mm -hmm. is more powerful than some of the supercomputers that we had back then. So because of hackers, because of people with the uh, entrepreneur mindset, that's where we're at today. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. So what's going to, what's going to be your new role? Have you got, have you got, have you got a title? Uh, let's have a look. You got pen tester, but mm -hmm. you know, if anyone, anyone that knows you looks at your LinkedIn, all these things don't really mean what you're doing. So like, <laughs> what's, your, what's your role? Um, my role is to help build the company uh, and really anything I wanna do. Um, they're going to be training certain law enforcement agencies on how to um, look at forensics, um, also the pen testing side of it. I'll be running a, a pen testing team. Uh, so, really they, they kind of gave me a, an open-ended type of contract where they have a set duty that they want me to perform but anything outside of that that's going to further research it's pretty much a, an empty cart and i can fill it with whatever i want um they're giving me a lot of freedom to be myself and to just kind of help the company what, what do you think the biggest thing then that businesses should worry about people like you attacking environments, testing environments, et cetera, with your capability and mindset, what should, what, what area should businesses be focusing on most to protect? People and process. Um, the technology is, is the easy part of it. The hard part is getting to know the people that, that work for you, um, not just as an employee, but as a person, um, because they're gonna be the ones who are compromised. It's not gonna be the high-tech equipment uh, chances are most breaches occur because of lacks in security on the individual side, not a company. Um, so I, I always encourage people, especially team leaders, to really get to know their their employees and encourage, you know, advancement, encourage, you know, getting more certifications, more research time. Uh, I, I always give my people at least 25% of their time to do research um, to help them out, something they're interested in. Because the second you turn your back on that employee and make that employee somebody that, that is miserable, they're either, you're either going to lose them or you're going to lose money. 
so you know it's 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 a lose lose situation if you don't treat people with respect and, and learn learn who you people who your people are outside the office. Mm. So you mean like an insider threat kind of scenario, right? Absolutely. People, yeah. Okay. Not even not even insider threat really because yeah that's that's a huge a huge issue, but when those when those employees leave they leave with information about your company. Hmm. Um, and you know, that's what made me successful at what I did with anonymous was because of the fact that I had insider knowledge on a lot of processes and a lot of people, uh, and as an employee getting paid to sit there and learn the, the infrastructure and the vulnerabilities and learn the people and, and their attitudes and, and who they are, it's really easy to social engineer and, and get what you want. Hmm. I, I have a quick question for you then. So, you know, you, you were an anonymous, um, and you were hacking the organization that you were working on. Did you was that thrilling for you because you had background information so you knew how to how to move around the network you knew who to exploit you knew who to target or did you find it too easy so you you might, might move to a harder target or move to a complete black box where you have known nothing other than a domain name it's it's all challenging um the hard part of getting information out of that financial institution was challenging um and learning how to protect the data that, that I had taken uh, was really interesting because I didn't always wait until I got home to shuffle that information out. Um, you have to find means and ways to do it through the network to a dead drop location. Um, so all of this challenging, all this interesting. And as a pen tester, like that's my passion. Um, so my, dad, my dad told me when I was younger, don't let your job define who you are because one day you may lose that job. Well, I've done it the opposite. I've defined what my job is. Um, being part of you know, pen testing and, and ethical hacking before ethical hacking even existed, uh, we got to kind of determine what our role was, what, where we're going as an industry. Um, so it's always been a passion. And everything, I think, is a challenge if you look at it the right way. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good insight. Um, so, We've covered a lot, um, you know, your, your journey in InfoSec, your, how you kind of got started, um, the mindset, the, um, some of the campaign that you worked on APT and OWS and, and stuff like that. What's kind of next then? Do you think, you know, where you're heading in, in Germany, for example, is a long-term kind of career passion move for you? Or is this a, you know, have you got another itch that you want to scratch in this industry that you're looking to break into further? Do you think it's pen test for life? I, I think it's pen test for life. Um, I, I just can't seem to get away from it. Um, they throw me into management positions all the time, but I end up going right back to the technical hands-on. Um, but I'm starting to look at different ways of attacking. Um, I think we've forgotten how easy it is to attack things through archaic means, uh, like RF, for example. Um, you know, steganography through RF. There's, there's tons of ways that we've completely blinded ourselves because we're so focused on the future and AI and machine learning that we've forgotten how easy it is to get stuff out the window through RF. So that, that's kind of where my focus is. What's like, what's, how would you, what's steganography and RF? How, what the fuck? I get, I get, I know what those terms are. Right. <laughs> but together. <laughs> so there, there's things like slow scan TV for RF. Um, where you can scan documents, um, you can scan photos, whatever, ah. and send it out through RF. Um, the, the people who don't know about RF 
uh, I find it just confusing that people have passed that up because mm. in the air around us, there's constantly signals floating around and those signals contain data. Why can't they contain network data or database data? Uh, so that's, I kind of started doing that with VoIP um, back in the day. And now I'm focusing more on RF because there's no control measures for RF besides the Faraday cage. I always, do you know what? It's so funny you say that. I, and I love a bit of RF because I'm, oh, I'm a licensed ham. Me too. Um, I've got, I've got, well, we'll talk offline about that. I've got a boatload of CW gear to right, right over here. Um, and I, I've always thought to myself, I'm tuning around the bands on 20 meters like what's to stop someone just like broadcasting some encoded more you know some official secrets no who's listening to that you know it's just a bunch of amateurs just talking bullshit so I actually <laughs> so did, it's actually the best did, way <laughs> exactly so i actually did a podcast on that just a couple of weeks ago about SIGINT and number stations because number stations are used by spy agencies and they're still active i have recordings i surf the the frequencies on shortwave all the time and, and record number stations What's a number it, station? What I've heard. So, what is a number station? So a number station. Let's take Russia for instance, right? And they have uh, agents within the U.S. They said at a certain time, and then they broadcast a series of numbers. There's a recording. Lady comes on. She reads a string of numbers. First three digits are to a specific agent. And then there's a break, and then there's a string of numbers. And with a one-time pad, those numbers will match up to letters, and they'll decode the message, burn the pad. Uh, but they've been around since, you know, World War II. I mean, they, and they're still there. And that's my point is that we've advanced wow. technology, but we're, we're forgetting the old stuff and we're not building measures to control the old stuff. So it's still effective. That's amazing. That's whole like enigma shit, isn't it? Where we can start yeah. like, you know, one time pad, but have I got this right? I might have judged this, but as part of breaking the enigma, it was around they used this the same key twice because like they had to resend a message or something and then they could like you know work out some common words that were in the in the sentences whatever whatever and they could ultimately decrypt the key and reverse engineer the, the box is that right, is that right? yeah that's right and it actually happened not too far away from your at at Bletchley park that's right yeah that's right yeah where the the rsgb the radio society of great britain are based as it happens yeah. um yeah, fascinating. I'm gonna. I'm definitely googling number stations tonight, and I'll be doing a bit of listening. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> well, check out the podcast because the podcast actually I has will. instructions on how to create your own number station. Oh shit! This is my whole whole rest of my week taken care of. There you go. <laughs> I'll speak to you tomorrow. Like, I haven't gone to bed yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just broadcasting okay. random strings of numbers and. Uh... <laughs> yeah, Mike, honestly, like. I have so many more things. There's so many things, so many little avenues and things you say, and you think, "What do you mean by this?" And you start going down them, and it's just like your life. Your life has been, I think it's fair to say, a roller coaster. You know, you've gone, you've had such a life experience, which is for some people, maybe they would love to have it or they hate to have it. I don't know. You, you, it's happened to you, and I guess there's nothing you could do about it now, other than look back and tell your story and tell people advise people not to do it yeah please don't do this but how would you um, describe it then what what words yeah. would you use to describe the last like 20 years um so when i talk to people offline i usually tell them that you know life imitates art but that art is not always pretty um movies do happen in real life and there's real people behind those actors um 
and but it's not always a good ride so yeah i try to get people to not follow the way i went and people that are in the middle of it um you know it's, it's really hard to watch and so I, I try to give them as much as myself as i can so that they could you know grab a hold of something and hope that they don't sink because it's really easy to sink on the weekend you talked about how you sympathize with snowden and not with assange is that right that's correct Am I getting that right? yeah um and i'll explain that so snowden um exposed x key score uh, which was <clears throat> a, a program where they were using keywords to basically dig every phone call, um, not just foreign, not just domestic to foreign, but domestic to domestic, which is not supposed to happen. Um, and he left with that information and disclosed it. And the people who didn't know that we were being monitored, they needed that information. Um, but people like us that you know know what goes on behind the doors, we, we knew we were being recorded already. But as far as Assange goes, Assange put a lot of people's lives at risk in the field, in the military, um, leaking information. Chelsea Manning did the same thing. I have no respect for people who take that information and damage people's lives, like physically kill people with it. Um, there's no room for that in the industry. And, and I, I do believe there needs to be a level of transparency between the government and the people. But the people don't need to leak information is going to hurt another citizen or kill another citizen. And that's what happened with Chelsea Manning and Assange. And Assange had a string of other offenses that had to do with people underage. And I just, I don't have respect for people like that. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I understand. I definitely understand where, where you're coming from on that. Um, do you, do you see yourself and Snowden as very alike? I, I mean, I do. I mean, you've gone definitely, definitely different ways. I'd probably say Snowden just fleed and he's, he's done his thing. And yeah, it's been difficult for him outside of the country, but I feel like you're living in America now. I mean, you're, you're more oppressed than anywhere else. You, you've not no free movement. Um, you might as well be at a black site. I feel like you've got it worse to be honest with you. Um, yeah. I, and I agree with that. Um, the difference between me and Snowden is Snowden's level of access to information. Um, I never leaked any military information. He did. Uh, and Snowden, in my mind, was not a hacker. Um, I, if you have access to information, I wouldn't call it hacking. Uh, but I do respect the fact that he wanted to get that information, that transparency out there. I think he went about it the wrong way, but you know, I do believe the end goal was accomplished. Okay, that's cool. I wanted to ask you earlier, what's your, what, what, what was your favorite tool that you can publicly disclose? Favorite tool? Um, I know you created some earlier on in your life, some VoIP tools. But uh, what was, what was, what's your favorite tool that you used at, during your CI days? Or To be honest with you, I like EdderCap. Um, EdderCap is really complex okay. and, and really robust. And the amount of information that you can trap with EdderCap is amazing if you use it the right way. So a lot of the VoIP tools that we built are based on EdderCap. So somehow just recompiling packets. I knew you were going to give us an RF style tool there somehow. So yeah, plucking packets out Sorry. here it fits perfect with, with what you said, Mike. Yeah. yeah. I love it. Absolutely. Well, listen, it's been a fantastic episode for us. We, if I'm honest, we could keep going and going here, but 
and, and almost just pick you apart to, to the nth degree, but you've given us so much to work with, so much insight into uh, your your career journey, your your life story, um, and and the good parts and the bad parts there. And I really appreciate you opening up to us uh, and sharing that with uh, with our audience. There's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of takeaways here for people to digest. Um, and if I'm honest, I've I've loved it. I've loved every minute of this conversation, Mike. And and I hope we we get to do it again sometime as well. Oh yeah, totally. Especially if you you know if you pass through the UK. Um, we're in the north anyway. You, you seem to have a penchant for Scotland. I mean, we're not that far, but still. Um, so yeah, it'd be fantastic to uh, do this again. I'm always open for a part two if you guys want to. I'm always available. Absolutely. Yeah, well, we will hold you to that. And I wish you well for your podcast as well. Mm. Uh, I'll definitely be a subscriber, take a listen, and uh, we'll, we'll link that into the uh, description of this episode as well, Mike. So thank you again for taking the time. Thank you.